last few weeks, you'll know we're in the middle of a series working through the book of Ephesians. And the title for this series is Full to Fill. Full to Fill. We probably don't have a graphic, but there should be a graphic for that. In fact, everyone laughed at my graphic, so I think someone's deleted it because I made it myself. Um, Full to Fill. And the idea is, as you read through Ephesians, we realize how full we are of the blessings and the glory and the presence and the power of God. But it is not just fullness for fullness sake, so that we feel like we can experience fullness of life, so that we get to enjoy it, but we are full to fill. We have been given so much that we're overflowing and we're to fill the earth with the presence and the power and the glory and the love of Jesus. And so we're working through this stage by stage. And you remember I said about two prayers that we're going to hold, almost like things that we're just going to keep coming back to as a church. And we're praying it over us and over the church. And we encourage you to as well. And we print it out week two. The first prayer is in chapter one, and it's 15 to 23. And the end of that, it says this. It said that God placed all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Who is the church? The church is the body. It's the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. If you're here in the youth, it's time to go out and be waved at. So youth, um, go gather at the back. Andrew's there. So we are so full that we are to fill. What are we full of? We're full of the presence of God. It's some it's the spiritual blessings we talked about in week one. We are overflowing with everything that we've received in Christ so that we can go and fill. And so this week, Paul is addressing a particular thing in the letter. And essentially what he's saying in a way we can apply it to us this morning is we are never going to be able to contain the fullness of God in the way that we are created to contain it as the body of Christ, as the church, so that we can fill everything in every way. Unless, unless he says, we tear down the walls of hatred between us. It's a punchy passage this morning. But there is no way that we're going to be able to be filled as a body with the presence, the power, the love, every spiritual blessing that God longs to pour out in and through us as the body of Christ unless we tear down the walls of division between us. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the walls of racism. I'm talking about the walls of classism, ageism, sexism, every dividing wall of hostility that in our fragile, insecure humanity we put up to protect ourselves from other people. Unless we understand the true meaning of unity, biblical unity, we're not going to experience the fullness that we're created to experience and to give out. But let's just get personal for a moment before we get into the passage. Why do we put walls up? Why do we put these walls of division between us? Now, nobody likes a church leader who engages in amateur psychology. Um, I get told off for it all the time. In fact, I did a staff retreat. One of the first things we did here as a church, we had a little staff retreat, and I pretended I knew about the Enneagram. I don't know if any of you have ever done the Enneagram, but the purpose of the Enneagram is to encourage each other that we're all different, and we all bring these beautiful gifts to the table, and together we can produce something absolutely wonderful as a result. Now, I hadn't prepared very well for this session, and it turns out it was me leading it, so I read something on the internet, and it turned out that what I read was the 
the shadow side of every single number on the Enneagram, one to nine. And so I got into the session and I started reading out all these different personality types and essentially what's wrong with you. Everything that's wrong with you within half an hour. By the end of the session, half the staff team are crying. And everyone says, Ben, can you never let Ben anywhere near anything like that ever again? In fact, we coined it the Benniagram and we said we're never going to come back to it. Benniagram is banned. Anyway, I'm going to have another go this morning. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm not. This is actually from a lady called Jenny Peters who runs something called Connected Lives and it's an exceptional charity and we're a hub of that charity here at this church and they run marriage courses, they run parenting courses, they do lots of amazing things and it's all kind of based in and around the attachment theory. But there are three, according to this theory, there are three core sensitivities which we have or we have one of, a dominant one of that essentially stops us from having the kind of unity we're talking about here. It causes us to put walls up between each other. The first is that some of us might be esteem sensitive. How do you know if you're esteem sensitive? You know you're esteem sensitive if when you're in relationship, if there is a whiff of criticism. Is there, if there's even a whiff of anything that might be wrong with you coming from the other person, instantly you put walls up and you say, I'm not going to be in relationship with that person ever again. And you isolate yourself from esteem, sensitivity. If you are going to get to know me, if you're going to have any level of intimacy with me, you're going to see some of my blind spots. You're going to see some of my flaws. And as soon as you start noticing them, or I even think you might be noticing them, I'm going to stick a wall up and I'm not going to let you anywhere near me again. And that is a problem. Now, obviously, we have to do this on the basis of trust. And we don't allow people into that level of intimacy with us unless we know that we have that level of trust and relationship. That goes without saying. But the idea is that we have to tear down this wall of esteem sensitivity if we are ever going to have the kind of unity that Paul talks about in this passage, which we're going to read in a second. Because if we're going to be like family as a church, then our flaws are going to be on show. The good, the bad, and the ugly are going to be on show because we're sharing our lives with each other, and we'll come back to that in a second. So you may be a seam sensitive. That may be stopping you from having the kind of unity that Paul's talking about when I read this passage. Second is safety sensitive. Now, safety sensitive people stick their walls up if they get even the whiff of somebody trying to control or overwhelm them. So you're starting to have a friendship, a relationship with someone, and then somebody has an opinion or somebody um, speaks about something into your life that might have the whiff of a sense of control or overwhelm, and instantly a safety-sensitive person sticks up this wall and says, I can't have a relationship with you. You're smothering me, you're controlling me, you're overwhelming me, and as a result, the walls go up and we aren't able to have any level of intimacy. And then the third category are people who are separation-sensitive. And essentially... This is people uh, for whom any distance, any perceived distance in a relationship causes serious problems. And this is the opposite, really, to the other two, in a way, because people who are um, separation-sensitive find it really hard to define themselves apart from intimate relationships. And so, therefore, the temptation here is that the walls are so far down that you sacrifice your sense of individuality. And of course, we know that's not a good thing because that isn't true unity. True unity isn't that we will do anything to stay in relationship. True unity is that in a relationship, we are 
fully ourselves, but we're intimate with the other person. We can be the person that God created us to be, but we don't have to collapse our lives into that person. We're an expression of the image and the likeness of God and his beauty and his splendor and all that he has on show in the body of Christ. And so these three sensitivities, esteem sensitive, safety sensitive, separation sensitive, these sorts of things are stopping us from having the kind of unity. And really, in life, it just means if we haven't overcome these, if we haven't find, found a way to find healing in these sensitivities, then in life, we're going to be lonely. We're going to find it hard to have the kind of intimate relationships that we are created to have. That's what happens on a relational level. But on a church level, as the body of Christ... That is even more severe in that if we can't get over these dividing walls that we put up between each other, we're not going to be able to host the fullness of the presence of God. A church that isn't unified, a church that isn't able to be in this level of relationship that we're going to read about in a second from Paul is going to find it hard to be filled to overflowing with the presence of God. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read the passage here from Paul, and it will come up on the screen behind me. It says this, chapter 2 from verse 11. And the title of this little thing that the NIV has given is Jew and Gentile reconciled through Christ. It says this, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, this is the Jewish people, nation of Israel, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what do we have there? Paul's talking about Jew and Gentile being reconciled by the cross. Well, let's first ask this question. What should it be like? What is a biblical picture of unity as the body of Christ? Well, in order to do that, we look at 19 to 21, and it says this, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined 
together. What's Paul talking about there? He's talking, he's using three metaphors there for what our relationships are supposed to be like in church as the body of Christ. And they increase in the level of intimacy as he goes on. So the first thing he says is, as the body of Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the same heavenly city. And so therefore, we abide by the social conventions and rules of that city. And we dwell in peace together in that city. And so therefore, we're connected like we might be if we were in the same city. It's why when something horrific like Tion being stabbed in New Cross, we are part of that same city and community. And as a body, we stand up and we say no. It's not going to happen on our streets. It's why throughout London, people are standing up and they're saying, no, we're a part of this city together and we are not having that on our streets. And we want to become a part of the solution to that. We're bound together because we are citizens of the same heavenly city. But he doesn't stop with city. Because in the Gospels, there's a hint of this with Jesus. If you remember, um, all Jewish people would have circumvented Samaria. They would have gone miles out of their way so as to not associate with any Gentiles. But what does Jesus do? He goes through Samaria and he engages with the Gentiles and he frees the woman and he gives her the water of life at the well, if you know that story in the Gospels. That's a hint of what he's about to do on the cross. I'm going to talk about that. But it is not just citizens of the same heavenly city. We're also told that we're members of the same household. So we don't just share the social conventions of the city that we have in common. We also share DNA. We're a part of the same family. In fact, he says there, doesn't he, in verse um, 18, he says, we both have access to not a religion, not a moral code, not tick boxes, not an event on Sunday where we gather together. We both have access to our Father. We're created in his image and likeness. We share the same DNA. We're part of the family of God. That is more intimate than just simply being a part of the same city. But he doesn't even stop there. He says later on that we are like stones being built on Christ Jesus, who is the cornerstone, and we are cemented together to build the building, the temple of God, through which the dwelling of God is going to be poured poured out. So what are we? We're citizens. We're family. But we are so closely united As a body of believers, it's like we're cemented together and we're bricks of a building. And if one bit is compromised, the whole building's compromised. That is the level of unity. That is the dream of what a New Testament church looks like. And so I guess the obvious question for us as a part of St. Peter's is this. Is that your experience of this church? Do you feel like as a church we're cemented together like bricks in a building hosting the presence of God? Do we feel like family? One of our values here at church is that church should feel like family. We should be fully known. We should have people who know us intimately, inside out, who love us and whom we can trust and who can start to love us in the way that God loves us, but not just fully known. We need to be unconditionally loved because when we're fully known, everything's on display. Like I said, it's not just the good, it's the bad and the ugly. We don't have control over what people see when we're fully known by each other. So we have to be unconditionally loved. And if we're unconditionally loved and we're fully known, then we have a chance as the people of God to become who we're called to be. Why? Because we're all being transformed in his likeness. And guess what the primary method through the power of the Holy Spirit is of us being transformed into the likeness of God? 
It's community. It's a church. It's relationships. As we get to know each other, and as we start flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit, other people can start helping us become the people we're created to be by encouraging us, by lifting us up, by pointing us back to God as our Father. So is that your experience of church? Is it your experience of St. Peter's? Do you have people in this church or in your Christian community who you know and trust, who know your blind spots? It's always a good question. It's deeply, deeply uncomfortable. But do you have people in the church family who know your blind spots? And they're not judging you because of them, but they're helping you to come nearer to the Father and be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can find feeling, healing. Some of the things that have caused those blind spots over the years, and we find healing in the power of the Spirit so that we can become the people we're called to be. Is that your experience of church? Now, I recognize that there's certain organizational things that prevent that from happening. For example, I'm not saying on Sunday with this amount of people, we make ourselves fully known on every level and we come and we're basically walking up to people we don't even know in the break and say, hey, listen, could you just tell me a few of my blind spots? Because I'd love to know how bad I am so that I can become, we're not saying that at all. This has to be worked out apart from the Sunday event. Remember, another value we have is every day, not an event. Every day means we're family, that we should have a smaller group of people in this church with whom we relate on that kind of level. We're fully known, we're unconditionally loved, and they're helping us become who we're called to be. Are you in a group like that? Or if you don't come to this church, or you don't consider this church your family, then are you doing that in your own church? Because that's how we're going to start living out what it means to look like a New Testament church, as Paul is talking about. Okay, so that's what it should be like, okay? And that's the ideal. And every single one of us here, well, many of us here, I think, would sign up to that. But there's a reason why that is not always the case. What is stopping us from engaging with each other on that level, from being citizens of the same family, the same heavenly city, being members of the same household, from being like bricks cemented together, building the house of God? What is stopping us? Well, In order to know that, we have to look at a couple more verses, and this is what Paul's saying. And this is how things were sold between Jews and Gentiles. It says this in verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. So two groups that previously hated each other, wouldn't associate with each other on any level. He has made the two groups one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands, and its regulations. So, before we look at the solution, what's causing us to put these walls up between us? What are these dividing walls of hostility? And by the way, the Greek for the word hostility there is strong. It's hatred. It's hatred in the human heart. It's hatred that means that we're putting up these walls between us. So, what are the dividing walls? Well, In this context, the dividing walls, bizarrely, are the law and the regulations. So in the context of Jews and Gentiles. Now, that doesn't quite make sense to us. We don't have that same problem, do we? Because essentially we're all, most of us here, are Gentiles. We're not from the household of Israel. We don't follow the laws and the regulations that were set out. But the problem is, if we think that that's the problem, the laws and the regulations, we're going to completely miss the mark in terms of how we're going to tear down these dividing walls 
uh, walls because there is a principle there that we need to get hold of. But in order to understand the principle, we need to understand what was going wrong with the law and the regulations for the people of Israel. Because essentially, the law and the regulations were given to the people of Israel as a good thing. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul says, he's just outlining how terrible we all are. And he says, does that mean that the law is evil? And then he says, by no means. The law was from God. The law is a good thing. So what's happened? Why has it meant that the nation of Israel put up all of these dividing walls between them and the other people? Well, the truth is for the nation of Israel, something that was supposed to be a good thing became a God thing. And what happened? Well, the law which was given to them so that they could be a Deuteronomy light to the other nations, instead had become markers stopping other people from getting near them. And so because they followed the law, they thought anybody outside of the law who wasn't following the same regulations as them shouldn't be allowed in. In fact, they went so far as to say, you shouldn't go anywhere near them or touch them or associate with them whatsoever. Something that God gave to them to be a light for the nations, to show the glory and the presence and the beauty of the one true God who'd revealed himself to the nation of Israel instead became dividing walls of hatred that they put around them. So what is the principle? What's the principle for us? Because we don't have that same problem, do we, with law and regulation. How does that apply to us? Well, here's how I think it applies. The things that make us different might be things that we're proud of, things that make us unique, can become dividing walls if we let them define who we are. If a good thing becomes a God thing, And by God thing, I mean you give it the power to change how worthy you feel, how significant you feel, what makes you feel good about yourself. If a good thing becomes a God thing, you give it the power to tell you how secure you are. We end up putting up these walls around us. What does that look like? Well, we do this with the things that set us apart. Like, for example, something we might be proud of is that we've got a good education or we've got good grades at school. We've done well through university. We've got a good degree. And if that defines who we are, if that defines our sense of security and self-worth, very quickly, we're going to start putting up walls of hostility between us and other people. We're going to say, well, I'm not going to associate with this person because they're on a different level in terms of education. There's nothing that they can teach me because I am the enlightened one. I'm the one who has it all together. I know what's going on, and so therefore I'm not going to associate. And it stops us from being family, and it stops us from being cemented together. But more importantly than that, it stops us from hosting the presence of God, being full to overflowing with his presence. Why? Because we are all made in the image and likeness of God. That every part of our difference, all the things that we're proud of, are good things. They're incredible things. They reveal the image and the likeness of God as our heavenly Father and our creator and redeemer, but if they become the source of our identity and self-worth, they stop us from interacting with each other. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his screw tape letters. In fact, no, it's mere Christianity, actually. He says, people are not proud of being rich. They're proud of being richer than the next person. So these things that we love about ourselves, often we're proud of them because it's comparative which is more rich or more educated or from a better class than this other person. And we think that that makes us a better person. 
And here's the real problem. Instead of saying, oh, so we're all different. We're all from different backgrounds. We've got different experiences in life. This is the beauty of the kingdom of God. It, what it mean, it's what it means to be the image and likeness of God as a whole, as a unified body of believers. Instead of saying we're different, we say we're better. And instantly these walls of hostility go up because the human heart is ordered so that our strength often becomes this dividing wall of hostility between us. It's exactly what happened for the Jewish people. The law, which was supposed to be the strength of the nation of Israel, being a light to the nation so that the glory and character of God was going to be revealed, became something that made them better than other people. So for us, what are we proud of in our own lives? What do we love about our upbringing, our culture, our education, the way that we think, everything about us? What are we so proud of that it has become our source for security and self-worth and identity? Because if we're in that place where we're getting our security and self-worth and identity from those things, we're going to start putting up these walls of division because we think we moralize these differences. We think that we're better. This is why Paul, and this is a beautiful passage, in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the body parts, right? And he knows what we like. He knows the condition of the human heart. He says that the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker... It's all perceptions because we think that this is how things are supposed to be. They seem to be weaker. Instead of being dispensable, Paul says they are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there shall be no division, so that we get to be cemented together so that we can hold and host the presence of God being full to overflowing. One thing that we've seen over the years here at St. Peter's, and we've only been here four years, Hanel and I have been learning what it looks like to lead a, a truly diverse church. And I've talked about this before, but one of the things that really the reasons that this church started was because a lot of our friends were moving from north of the river to southeast London because the housing was more affordable in southeast London. And so as a result, there was starting to become a group of people here who were asking for a church, a bit like the church that we were going to in north London, south of the river. And they were commuting, they were saying, can't you plant a church south of the river. And so we started to visit Southeast London, talk to people and get a sense of what we felt like God was saying and calling us to do in Southeast London. And a part of that, once we felt like God affirmed that we should be here and we felt this strong sense of calling, we started to encourage people who had moved down or even were thinking of moving down or might want to follow us to build a church. We started to encourage them to come with us to Southeast London. And to our shame, one of the things, my shame, one of the things I used to tell people is Southeast London isn't as bad as you think it is. And we laugh, but there's a horrific thing to say oh, but there's this coffee shop that's just started down the road and the whole area is up and coming. So you don't need to worry about traveling from Marylebone and coming down here because it's getting better. What, what was I doing there? 
something that we loved about our previous church was that it was full of young people and creatives and people who were moving in lots of different powerful circles in the, in the city, if you like, or doing particularly exciting jobs. And we thought, we love that about church. We want to recreate that church in southeast London. And what we didn't realize was that without the expression of the whole of the body of Christ in the church, then the church wasn't going to be the kind of church that it needed to be to see the power and the presence of God come about. And so we were taking, I was taking with me this dividing wall of hostility, thinking, well, a church with these types of people is better than the church elsewhere, because it's just a better expression of the church. Absolute nonsense. And one of the things we've had to do, I've had to do, is I've had to repent of that, and I've had to say sorry for that, and I've had to turn about in my ways and realize that actually the most beautiful thing about this church is that it doesn't have just people who look like me and Hanel, who think like me and Hanel, who act like me and Hanel, who are from backgrounds like me and Hanel, who are from education like me and Hanel. The most beautiful thing about this church is that we have beautiful diversity here and it is the expression of this area in southeast London and it's how we're going to build a church that's going to truly host the presence of God because our differences are what make us more Christ-like they're the expression of his likeness of his image on earth and guess what his likeness and image isn't just looking like one particular type of person And essentially, that just comes from deep insecurity, doesn't it? If we want everything to be like us, think like us, look like us, it's just an insecure way of expressing the fact that we don't want to be challenged or have people who think differently from us. So that's how some of these walls of hostility get built up. What's the solution? So how are we going to get around this? Because essentially what Paul's saying there, this is the problem, a problem of the human heart. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, you know, the law says don't commit adultery. But I'm saying to you, if you even look at another woman with lust in your eyes, then you've committed adultery. It's why he says that murder doesn't just happen. It's not something that you just do. It comes from furious hatred in your heart. It's a problem of the human heart. If we're going to tear down these walls of division between us, we need to deal with the human heart. And so how do we deal with it? Well, the solution's here in verse 15 and 17. It says this. So by setting aside in this flesh the law with its commands and regulations, then it says this, his purpose, the purpose of Jesus, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So what is the solution? How do we tear down these walls of hostility that we put between us? The first is that we go to Jesus on the cross. And on the cross, two things happen. Firstly, we're humbled. We realize that no matter how proud of the things how proud we are of the things that make us different, make us unique. They are not good enough to get us into the presence of God. On the cross, we're humble. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, 
peace was needed for those who were near God, so the nation of Israel, who knew kind of the character of God. It was revealed through the law, but still they weren't able to access God, and they kept messing up again and again and again because it wasn't a problem of doing the right thing. It was a problem of the human heart. He said those people needed the peace of Jesus. Those people needed Jesus to die on the cross, but also the Gentiles who were far away. They had no idea about the law. They had no idea about the character of God just because it hadn't been revealed to them. They also needed peace. They needed Jesus' sacrifice on the cross so that they could get near to the Father. They could have access to the Father. The thing that happens when we look at the cross is it's the great leveler in the best sense of the word. It's a bit like a service station on the M1. Everybody needs to use it. You've got to fill your car up with petrol. You've got to use the toilet. No matter how good your car is, no matter how rich you are, no matter how amazing your upbringing is, everybody needs to use it. The same for Jesus accessing. It's really not the same. It's a terrible analogy. just came to my head, actually. And I'll never use that again. I'm sorry. Um, The same is true for us. We can't work our way into access to the Father. The things about us that we're proud of, they don't get us into the presence of God. Why? Because all fall short of the glory of God. It's only through the grace and the peace of Jesus poured out on the cross through his blood. So the first thing, we come to the cross and it humbles us. Second thing, we come to the cross. It doesn't just humble us. What else does it do? It gives us a brand new identity. And guess what? And if you hear one thing this morning, hear this. This is the most important thing. This identity is given. It's not worked for. We receive it. No matter how hard we might think we have to work to be a good Christian, no matter how hard we think that we have to make things seem okay so that we can be who we're supposed to be, the truth is every single one of us falls short. And when we come to Jesus on the cross, he pours out his grace on us all so that we all become children of God. Not because of what we've done. Not because of how we live, not because of the things in our life that we're proud of, but because of Jesus, who lived the life that we should have lived, who died the death that we should have died, who rose from the grave and fills us with his Holy Spirit, who put to death the walls of hostility that we put up in our lives around each other. And this means that when we believe in Jesus, God treats us as Jesus deserves. That's why there's that beautiful start to Ephesians where he talks about we have received because of Jesus every spiritual blessing. We have all of this inheritance because of the person of Jesus, not because of who we are, not because of our brilliance, not because of anything we've done, but because of the person of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, we receive it. We don't earn it. So what should we do if we want a church where we're genuinely united, as we're talking about, as Paul's talking about there? Well, I heard this brilliant phrase the other day at this um, (laughs) Southwark clergy thing I went to. And um, the guy, the keynote speaker, said this. He said, roots down, walls down. Roots down, walls down. And he talked a little bit about it. But the beauty of that statement is very simple. Roots down, what do we have our roots in? We root ourselves in the person of Jesus. Because when we receive his identity, when we receive who we are in him, we realize that it makes us safe and secure. And it enables us to put all the walls down. It enables us to engage with difference. It enables us to engage with each other in the most beautiful way. Why? Because we know that 
all of our security, our self-worth, everything that makes us amazing is because of Jesus. Roots down, walls down. What does that look like practically? Remember those three categories that I delved into that I probably confused you all with because it's a amateur psychology. But if you are esteem sensitive, if you have your roots in the gospel, if you have your roots in the person of Jesus and you go to him and you make yourself available to Jesus through the spirit and you are into, truly intimate, the kind of intimacy we're talking about here when we look at the Bible, God is not going to judge you because of your faults. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you put your roots in him, you'll realize that you can be open with him about your faults and about your weaknesses. And instead of judging you, he's going to pour out mercy on you. And you're going to have the security and you're going to have the safety to be able to put walls down in your life and build genuine relationships with each other. If you are safety sensitive... If you find it really hard to be intimate with the other people because you think you're going to get overwhelmed, you think you're going to get controlled, then you need to put your roots in your relationship with Jesus. And as you root yourself in him and in the gospel, what you'll realize is that God is anything but controlling. He won't force or compel you to do anything. Because everything that we do is in response to how much he loves us. And so therefore, when we tear the walls down and we draw near to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, we receive a safety and a security that makes us feel completely safe and okay to be able to put walls down elsewhere. He's not going to control you. Those who are separation sensitive, and this is beautiful, if you draw near to God, if you put your roots down in the person of Jesus you're going to start to see that the person that you are created to be, your uniqueness, your individuality, God created you that way as a way of expressing his glory and his image and his likeness in the church. You don't need to be anyone other than who God created you to be. You can be completely yourself. And only when you are do we see the beauty and the glory of God. We get to enjoy it together as part of the church. And that when people separate from you in life, you're okay. Because he's got you in his arms. He's never, ever leaving you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. How do we get even more practical than that? How does that work out? Well, here's one thing that I think would be really fun for us to do as a church is to find somebody in our church not from the same upbringing, not from the same culture, not from the same education, who doesn't think like us, who doesn't even enjoy the same things that we enjoy. The only thing that you have in common with this person is that you both love and trust Jesus. I want us all to find a person or a couple of people or another family for whom that might be true, and I want us to start relating to each other like family. And I believe that as we start to do that as a church, as we start to have that kind of intimacy with each other, one thing is for sure, you're going to talk about Jesus a lot more in your conversations. And that is always a good thing. It's going to be amazing. And it's going to build you up. And it's going to be way more fulfilling than any other relationship and friendship you have. But the other thing that's true and that's going to happen is our church is we're going to start to be cemented together in our difference, in the beauty of what makes us unique. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit poured out 
in and through us as a church as a result. Because here is the prize. This is the prize. It's right at the end. It says this, verse 22. And in him, if we are able to be citizens, part of the same family, cemented together like bricks, it says in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. That's the language of Revelation. So the vision of the church is to bring heaven to southeast London, right? Again, language of Revelation. Revelation 22. See, behold, God's dwelling place is with humanity again. There's going to be no more tears, no more crying. There's going to be no more pain. The old order of things have passed away. But here's the beauty of the context of that statement. It says this in the presence of God, and this is Revelation 7. It says, is after I looked, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches. The whole of creation was coming alive. How much more will us, the pinnacle of the creation of God, come alive also? And they cried out in one loud voice, this is the unity. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice, they're not all the same. They don't all look the same, think the same, act the same, have the same culture. They're completely different in the most beautiful of ways. It's the expression of the image and likeness of God. What are they unified in? They are unified in salvation, belonging to God and the Lamb. Unified in Jesus. Out of which the fullness of the presence of God is going to be pulled out and we're going to be the dwelling place of God. Let's stand. You might want to shut your eyes just so you're not distracted. And let's open ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And what I'd love to do this morning is I'd love for the Holy Spirit to tear down some of those dividing walls that we might have put up might even know that, not know that we've put them up. We're going to ask them to tear them down. And we're going to do it not by pointing out the things that we've done wrong. But instead, we're going to draw near, exactly as Paul says there, we're going to have access. We're going to draw near to the Father by the Spirit. And we're going to ask him to say what we need to hear this morning. So I don't know which of those categories you might identify with, whether something that stops you from being in close relationship is the fact that you don't like your faults being on show. Why don't you just bring that before Jesus? He knows it all anyway. And ask his Holy Spirit to show you how loved you are. You don't need to perform to earn his love. He loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Holy Spirit, just pour out your spirit. Might be some of us here who fear being in 
intimate relationship because we think we're going to get controlled or overwhelmed. If that's you, why don't you just bring that to Jesus, lay at his feet. And to you, the Holy Spirit says, I lead you into wide open spaces. That where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That you are free to be who you were created to be. That I won't overwhelm you, I won't control you. that final group, those of us who find the idea of separation too painful and it stops us from being in relationship, or that we know that we're in relationships where we've had to sacrifice who we are so as to stay in relationship, we just bring that to God now. And he says over you, I created you the way you are because you are a part of the expression of my image and my likeness. And that your identity can be found in God as your father and nothing else. love to do before we finish is just if you feel like the Holy Spirit's put his finger on anything this morning that might be preventing you from being in those intimate relationships and being that picture of heaven that we've read about there in the book of Ephesians I'd love to pray for you before you go so if you could just come forward if it's one of those three categories or prayer for absolutely anything love to pray for people as well who have experienced coming up against those dividing walls of, of hatred. And we'd love to pray for the Holy Spirit to draw near to you and to comfort.